Sin Carriers, a West Side Fairy Tales story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Sin Carriers, Trolliver woke to find a great change had overcome him, along with a great hunger. Feeling confident or beyond fear, for the first time in his life, Tolliver cornered Mr. Vaught with a story of his youth in England. He further tried to force his way into the forbidden VIP section, but was rebuffed by a single inhumanly long arm. Garvey and Cutting disembarked from the train and entered the stilt town, Atalia, each with their own goals in mind. Vicky, Ducky, Elam, and Mildover converse amongst themselves about what's to be done with Sue. Mildover settling on turning her in after the trip, and Vicky taking a firm stand that he wouldn't allow them to do so. Chaos broke out soon after, as a giant lizard thing burst from the shadows beneath the pier and snatched Moira, disappearing into the water beneath the town. Vasily jumping in after her without a thought. In town, Vicky came across Greg Cutting, who was in the middle of killing a nightmarish white creature. They conversed, and it was made clear Cutting is thoroughly aware of the Blackwell Corporation, its machinations, and its intentions behind this ill-fated trip. On the train, Miskel rifled through Wickless's possessions while seeing to dawn, finding correspondence from the mayor of the last town they'd visited, and answers he didn't have the questions for. Soon after, Coakley tried to coax Miskel into reigniting Wickless's feud, and Miskel smothered him to death. On this episode of Sin Carriers, Sue suffers through fever dreams as she recovers from the concussion Wickless gave her. Tolliver finally stands up for himself. Vasily fights for his life in the fetid waters beneath the town. Mildover is terrified by something familiar, and Vicky finds himself sent off on a solo mission. What is the beast beneath the waves? A new and terrifying demon or one we already know? Will Tolliver's new existence become a freedom for him or a burden beyond his means to carry? And what secrets does this new location hold? You may find the answers to these questions and more on this, the 14th episode of Sin Carriers, Snake. Dust vanished through the lidless eyes of the rider's dead skin mask. What touched the wet horror behind those hollows never fell from beneath the torn leather throat. Stiffened flesh rasped a dry rhythm beneath the gusting sands. The sockets seemed to howl in the wind. Not going on up ahead, huh? The must said, cracking his neck. This far out from civilization, he'd stopped bothering to reform all of his clothing, forgoing shoes entirely. His suit hung in ragged strips off his body. Right arm gone, left knee showing through thin and smoking fabric. Seems so. The rider replied. His new pet ran up alongside him, moaning and falling onto his face in the dirt. When the rider's horse stopped, Wickless was allowed to stop too. But only then. Every other second was spent in endless agony. He clawed at the broken bones in his thighs as they stitched themselves back together. The rider looked at him, said nothing, and sauntered his horse to the crest of the closest hill. Wickless winced, waiting for the invisible draw, but he'd stopped close enough. He nearly broke into tears and fell back on the ground. The must's retinue of jittery, ball-headed things walked up alongside him and took root like mannequins. They sniffed the air and cocked their heads at every slightest sound. There were women and men, a touch more women, and they all wore whatever they'd had on when the must found them hiding in town. Some others had approached or even attacked him. Of their number, only one of the gray-suited Pinkertons remained. It alone stood quietly, staring up the tracks toward the village ahead of them. Atalia, the must said tromping up beside the rider. The dead skin mask favored him with a look. The rider rested his hands in his lap. You're familiar with it? He asked. 
The must shrugged and slapped the dust out of his hat. He fit the bent bill in place and tipped it down, letting it shade his eyes as he looked at the sky. I've been through it twice, he said. It's disgusting. They were drilling for oil and struck the aquifer. Now the entire place smells like mildew and petrol. The rider rolled his shoulders, looking at the town. Are you going to try waiting them out again? No, the rider said, snapping his reins. The horse kicked about and trotted back down the hill. Just far enough, Wickless could feel himself getting pulled to his feet. He hissed and stumbled and jogged to catch up with the rider. They hadn't stopped moving since the thing had dragged him off the tracks and given him a second life. Even that little bit was enough to let his legs nearly finish healing, though they still hurt enough he wanted to scream. What what should I do? Wickless asked. The rider didn't so much as look at him. I, I could go ahead and maybe talk them out of there. Let them know you're coming. The rider looked down at him and Wickless turned away. He still tried to explain himself. I could let them know you mean business and they should just cooperate. I don't cooperate. The rider replied. And they knew I'm coming. They can feel it in their bones. Even if they don't know it, it's like an itch on the backs of their necks. He stopped and looked back at the must, who was kicking loose sand out of his trousers. The man realized they were all looking at him and glared. What? He asked. Wickless shivered. He didn't know why, but he was sure the writer had just smiled behind that mask of his. It was something he felt in his heart no less cold and sure than the knife that had taken his eyes out of his head. He raised his hand to his cheekbones and pressed the balls of his eyes. They weren't the ones he'd been born with. He could feel that expressly somehow. But they were eyes. Not a thing on earth had ever hurt him as bad as that woman cutting him. He'd been looking at her eyes, Sue's, when she'd done it. When he finally got her, he would finish what he started and he'd begin with her eyes. Keep it in your pants, boy, the rider said in a low voice. For the first time since they'd met, he hopped down from the horse. Wickless caught the reins he tossed to him and watched, dumbfounded, as the rider walked up to the must. The smaller, though somehow no less severe, man gave the rider a suspicious look as he approached. Again, Wickless could feel the thing smiling grinning and sauntering up like a poker cheat hunting for a friendly game. You've been a Blackwell boy a long time, ain't you? He asked. The must glared and set his feet firmly in the ground. He crossed his arms and the dust began to swirl around his ankles. What are you getting at? He asked. If he were a braver man, Wickless knew. He would have appended a boy to the end of that sentence. But, by his own estimations, Wickless didn't believe a man that brave likely existed. You know who I'm working for? The rider asked. Should I? If you were somebody that mattered, sure. The rider said. The must rankled, but he didn't let the rider's comment face him any further. Some fresh wound played out in the expression on his face. But you ain't. And you know that Blackwell don't share. Why should he? (laughs) This time the rider laughed. It was a harsh, ugly noise. Me? I don't have to work. Just choose to. Suits me like (laughs) having some purpose after all these long years. I bet you'd like that sort of freedom, huh? You're already out here risking big done to cut the man. Says you, the must replied. But Wickless could tell he was hanging on the rider's words. Says me, the rider replied. All I need the job done. Doesn't matter if I do it. But if you end up making a handoff, well... 
That might be a nice little introduction for you. Sure. To who? The must asked. The rider leaned over and told him, whispering into his ear. The must jumped back, looking hard at Wickless in case the young man had overheard. She's dead. You're a fucking liar. Nothing really dies. The rider said. Not here, at least. He grabbed the must by his shirt and dragged him close, whispering in his ear. This time, the smaller man broke away and gave the distant city, Wickless, and the rider all a series of horrified looks, and then collapsed into a pile of sun-colored sand. It blew away toward the town of Italia, and the must's little retinue took off running after it. Some of them dropped to all fours and loped along like wolves. Good lord. What did you tell him? The rider gave Wickless a withering look and took his reins back, hopping up onto the horse. What I'm looking for, the rider said. He's gonna thin things out, and y'all gonna tell me all about this crew up ahead. We got time. They began to walk, and Wickless obliged him. Sue dreamed of the colors beyond the rainbow. Broken crystals laying at the farthest edges of the true universal darkness... She flew beyond the dim, petty stars of this universe and the next. Moving so fast, the great marble of existence crumpled and rested in her hand. She looked inside it and saw herself, gliding the stone's edge, a slick stain of light amongst so many trillion others dying and then gone. The last flickering lights died as embers in a fire do. Sadly. Quietly. She stood alone in an infinitely small void, Merely the memory of herself or some other self which might be. Anonymous millions wandered past her, darkly clothed and faceless save for the burn scars rooted into the flesh covering their skulls. They bowed as they passed, but were no more aware than foam rolling over a river. The egg in her palm shifted, moved. Endless dark, deeper than the universe and all the space beyond, drank the light from this stuffy, dust-choked room. Redness grew within, and so the marble did too grow. It shook, grew hot, burst, leaving Sue with a handful of blood and a black baby chick crying weakly in her hand. The faceless hordes stalled their mindless shifting and looked to her. Backs of heads, tilted ears, chins, and hands. These things had no sense of what made a human face and less of what to do with one to indicate interest. Silence lingered. The chick shook itself off and looked up at Sue, chirping once and then alighting on her sleeve. Blood she'd never washed away had stained not just part of her cuff, but all of it and more leather up to the elbow. The horde rushed at her, at the chick, reaching with hands and teeth. Some ripped away at their dusty clothes and opened great rents in their skin. These bore lips and fangs and tongues that moved with twitchy, insectile gracelessness. They fell on her and Sue held the chick to her chest, screaming, feeling them tearing her skin and biting into her. Some sharp thing plucked out her eye, another broke her spine, and just when she thought she was about to die, she felt a stirring in her hands. Black wings unfurled around her, beating these things to dust, and a great figure stood over her. As she lay dying, he knelt and held her head in his hands, his wings swirling closed around them. Sue shot up in bed, rolled over, and vomited. Her skull ached so bad she reflexively curled up and held her forehead against her knees. Another wave of nausea forced her to dip her chin over the edge of her bed and dry heave. Eye-watering pressure built in her skull, and she faded again into the gray nothingness of dream. No, children, I'm afraid. The crone said, pressing each card down with her thumb so that they snapped onto the table. Oh, that was never going to be an issue for you. Death was your only other option. 
The girl sat with the unfolded shaving knife in her lap, watching oily light dance over the blade. The handle shone too, though in a dull way. She'd cleaned off the blood a while ago, but could still see the stains on her hands. I don't care about that, the girl said, thinking of dead Hakeem with his face missing. I don't want children. True. I never did. A lie, but a soft one. The girl touched the puckered scars on her stomach and watched the woman spin the cards, her ruddy face twisting up at the corners. A smile. The cards bunched and spun as her father and the other men of her clan had spun in worship of the Almighty. Not so Almighty now, she knew. Or even if he was, his exaltation meant nothing. He didn't care. What cards do you have left, darling? The crone asked. The girl looked at the three cards in her hand, but no matter what she tried, only two of them showed their faces to her. This seemed to answer the crone's question anyway. Wolves howled and paced outside the sunken, earthen hut. A long way still to go then. The ancient thing swept her hands over the cards, spiraling them up into a ball of banded ribbons that rolled over top themselves. Colorful faces looked at the girl, who glared back. It's just a game. The cat sitting behind her said. It licked its paw and leapt onto the table drawing a look of scorn from the crone so hot it might have burned his hair. The cat stretched and looked at the girl. You don't have to play if you don't want to. The crone swiped at him and he laughed, bursting into a flurry of cards that scattered over the table and disappeared into the orb floating before the ancient woman. But if you do play, it's because you want to. The crone hissed through her teeth. He stirs she said in a quiet voice. The swirling ball shrank and darkened, becoming as hard and black as polished coal. Inside lay the glittering points of all the stars that had ever been or would be, brightest amongst them, laying at the far arm of a rural galaxy, shone an eye of perfect blue. A star whose radiation spread out and boiled the universe in a sea of rolling purple fire. Something snapped and this picture froze cracked. The orb split and a bird's beak pushed out of the old egg. It looked at the girl, spread its wings, and fluttered into her arms. Its feathers were a comfort against her neck. Warm and smooth, they caused her to burst into tears and lay her fingers gently across the thing's back. When she opened her eyes, the crone's face was all she could see. Bigger than the table and the earthen house, it seemed baked into the walls. Its toothless mouth opened wide, and a knotted white hand reached for the fledgling. Sue flew up out of bed this time, propelled not by her own effort, but by the entire car lifting off the ground and tossing her face first into the metal banding of the rack overhead. She screamed and clutched her forehead, bouncing violently as the train car crashed down into the tracks and then began turning onto its side. What the fuck? She hissed covering her tender skull as the car collapsed onto its side, and piles upon piles of other people's shit started pelting her, burying her. Something struck the car again and it rolled fully onto its roof, the thin support beams screaming and popping rivets under the sudden strain. Then Sue was clinging like a cat to the bars she'd just slammed her face into seconds ago. She gritted her teeth as the car was pitched onto its side, turning the quick walk to the other racks into a ten-foot fall. It wasn't far, but she didn't intend on being pitched about the second she landed either. Commotion continued outside for a long second before she finally let go and dropped into the pile of garbage beneath her. Despite her best efforts, she still managed to turn an ankle and bang her knee sliding on the scattered mattresses. Something struck the train again, and this time it slid along its side. Not flipping, but bounding with enough energy she rolled over top the sideways rack and landed on the middle of the downward-facing wall. A dislodged mattress fell beside her, and a lump of foul-smelling paper struck Sue in the cheek. It stuck to her skin, and she would have just thrown the stuff if she hadn't seen a small, familiar face looking back at her. That's money, 
she mumbled to herself, sniffing the papers and grimacing. She looked around and grabbed some scraps of nearby cloth to wrap it in before forcing her way to the door. Noises from the outside told her quite plainly that whatever was happening to her car was happening to the rest of the train as well. She waited at the door for a long moment, listening to a silence deep in outside until she was sure she could open it. Nothing. Sand pattering the steel sides of the car. Nothing. Sue opened the door and fell back as a blur of noise shot past her, screeching so loud she had to cover her ears and bury her head between her knees for relief. When she looked up, the door and part of the back of the train had vanished, leaving only shredded, hot-smelling metal. The shadows around her were also in different positions. She swallowed, considered her options, and ran for the hole. Sue leapt outside, stumbling over loose rocks and rolling into a sandy wash. The noises had started up again, howling and crackling nonsense unlike anything she'd ever heard before. She pushed herself onto her knees and peeked over a stony lip at what was going on. What she found was beyond her understanding. A greasy ball of swirling rainbow discoloration warbled back and forth on the tracks, a length of train car jutting from its belly. And it did have a belly, and arms and a head, though all of them were smooth and without fine details. You fucking slug! A man shouted from behind her. Sue reeled around and flipped out her knife, pointing in the direction of an unfamiliar man in tattered clothes. He wasn't speaking to her. Didn't seem to have even noticed her, in fact. Before she could get a good look at his face, his skin and hair boiled away, leaving only a skull that seemed to fire with green-gold flame. It adjusted its tie, and the body burst into flame as well, collapsing into a pile of dust that grew and grew until it had made a small cloud of itself. Hey, Aguila! A voice called from behind her. Sue turned to see Gato lying on his back atop a massive draft horse. Even as big as the man was, he looked small by comparison. The horse seemed to only barely notice Gato's presence, and was preoccupied with chewing on the leafless bark scrubs beside the dried-up wash. Half a dozen more horses were doing the same, though they cast occasional nervous glances at the thing on the train tracks. Sue turned to see the cloud of burning dust fall over top the ball. The air around them seemed to darken and compress. She smelled pure heat in the air. Sparks of electricity burst from the cloud, rolling down the tracks in both directions over and over again. The air beside her cracked and she went temporarily blind as a fat arc of lightning blackened the overturned sleeping car. You should probably not be over there, Gato said laying his head back and letting the sun fall on his neck. His draft horse raised its head and Sue saw the man had strapped his oversized sombrero onto the beast. It passed her an appraising look, grew bored, and went back to eating. Lightning cracked again and Sue jumped near out of her skin. Hell is going on? She asked, rubbing her forehead. With nothing else to occupy her, the pain of her splitting headache now commanded her attention. Little boys are fighting over toys, Gato said. Nothing to interest you, I'm sure. He opened his eyes and then gave the air a sniff. He turned to Sue. You smell like peace. Ain't me, she said, giving the commotion behind her a look before holding up the money she'd wrapped in a sheet. It's this. Ducky pissed himself again, Gato asked. How disgusting. How do you know who it is? Sue asked. From where she'd found it, she figured the money could have fallen out of the boy's bunk. You recognize people's piss? This is a disgusting conversation, Gatto said, turning his face away from her. He tapped the horse on its side and it sauntered away without hesitation. Sue gave the train a long look, sighed, and followed Gatto. Oh, what should we do? She asked. Now all she could see of him were his legs. The horse didn't seem to have any trouble walking over the terrain, unlike her, and she had to hop rock to rock to keep up with him. Train's in bad shape. Sue clucked her tongue, balancing on an unsteady boulder and then hopping onto a short ridge that brought her up to the horse's withers. 
I don't think we're going to get paid after all this, she said. Most certainly not, Gato said, pulling one of his knives from the bandolier he'd strung over the horse's shoulders. He used it to pick his nails. But I don't think you are intending to get paid from the beginning, eh, Aguila? Why do you keep calling me that? Sue asked. Her path pushed her up a short ridge that left her looking down at Gato. The ridge also covered him in shadow. His eyes glittered up at her. Some people are so unlike any other thing, it becomes the thing they are, Gato said. Maybe you would be a better outcome, but I think I get after you. You eat bigger than how you are, yes, but also your talents are very sharp. Not like Calva, but yes, like an Iberica. You are not American. Dono, Sue said, sliding down a rocky outcropping to come up even with Gato. They were heading toward the front of the train by a circuitous path, she noticed. Now the ones in the city seem to think so. Few of the folks I met originally from here say that's for the best. Native folks, that is. I worked ranches with them in Montana for a while. I think this land will one day kill everyone who has said they conquered it. Gato said. They will do as these two do until there is nothing left but cats and horses. This is for the best, I think. Imagine how nice these valleys would be without trains and towns. He closed his eyes and said nothing more. Sue pursed her lips and watched him feigning sleep for a while before deciding to break off from him and check on the front of the car. All right, all right, I'll read it, goddammit. Are you a fan of the Westside Fairy Tales podcast and my, my, my story, Sin Carriers? Then take a second right now, pause this episode, and take a second to like it, comment on it, or share it on your favorite social media sites. This year, we're trying to grow the Westside Fairy Tales like never before, and we need your help to do it. So if you have just a second, use Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the hell, and share the Westside Fairy Tales with the world. And if you want, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and what have you. Just search Westside Fairy Tales or use the link in the episode show notes. All right, that's it. I get you. Tolliver languished in the sun, rolling what he could of himself into the shade beneath the train car. Above him, he could hear spooked horses stamping about and bumping into their gates. It was an awful, raucous noise, dull and metallic. He could feel it pushing into him from all angles like so many needles. He moved what felt like an arm to slap at them, hush them up, and felt a great crunch beneath his flesh. Sunlight burned him, battered him. He crawled for shade on instinct, blind until he was again in the dark. Hey, you, a voice said. Tolliver moved his eyes through his body and found the tall Castellano peering at him beneath the lip of the car. The horses had restarted their damnable stamping. The tall man, Gatto, was frowning and dangling a severe-looking knife from his right hand. Something about the turquoise decorations made Tolliver's flesh recoil. Gatto pointed the knife at him. Do you know what has happened to you? You are making a mess of things. I don't feel okay, Tolliver said. He opened his face and took in the smells of the man, the horses above. Beyond all of that, he could smell her, sharp and cloying, fierce, the woman. He felt himself sweating at the thought of her. The man stepped back and squatted. You are not okay, Senor Lobe, Gato said. But you'll be fine, I think. You understand you have grown very large, yes? I didn't. Tolliver took stock of himself, casting his eyes about. They saw in odd, fractal colors, and there were many more now than the two he'd been born with. His presence spread out in a long smear beneath three of the cars, mostly hauled up beneath the horses. Eyes clustered there in translucent flesh, alongside the reddish pulp of his brain and some other odd organs. 
He looked inside himself, literally turning his own eyeballs backward, and saw this. The revulsion wasn't immediate. It rose and fell like the ocean, coming and going again and again until it finally struck a low tidal point and rested there. Gato watched him closely through all his introspections, eyes glittering a dull yellow in the shade beneath his tattered hat. Tolliver sighed and tried to drag himself together, but he couldn't manage to do much more than fatten the largest part of himself. It thickened and pushed the horse cart into the air. Gato slashed him, a thin cut that burned and continued burning for a long while after. Tolliver shouted, feeling every train car resonate above him. The Castellano watched dispassionately, waiting for Tolliver to quiet. When he did... He pointed the knife at the closest eye, which tried to tuck itself back into Tolliver's mass. You don't move anymore, understand? Gato asked. I am going to let out the horses. They are mine, because I like them. So you do not touch the horses, understand? Tolliver said he did, feeling his voice boom and belch like mud sucking cattle into a sinkhole. When I am gone, you do what you wish. Tolliver felt his eyes shift toward the back car. Her smell was a thumbtack in his every thought. He wanted so badly to pull her into himself, to surround her, to feel the softness of her skin as his own flesh boiled over her. When Gato and his damned horses had gone, he pushed that way, sliding and pulsing in the dark spaces beneath the train. Then he could feel her, through the metal and the bedding and even her own clothing as she lay sleeping. He wanted her awake, he knew. He wanted her to see him pushing into every window and door around her. He wanted her to know what was happening and finally surrender to him. Let her muscles go slack and give herself to the flesh. He pushed upward, bouncing the car especially hard and knocking it completely free of the track. No! It caught the edge of the embankment and rolled over onto its side, taking nearly half the remaining cars off the rails with it. Oh well, it was all fine. If that wasn't enough to wake her, what would be? He found the sunlight pouring over him now to be less hostile than before, accounting to the few scant clouds filling the sky. Or, perhaps, he was just growing accustomed to this new arrangement. In any case, he proceeded slugging down the side of the track and pulling himself together. It was an awkward, unbalanced way to be, shivering into place like a jelly mold. But he managed. Tolliver? A voice asked from beside him. Tolliver's eyes turned to see the must standing in a tattered suit just where the caboose had been a second ago. The man sighed, shook his head, and looked over at the cars that had slid off into the desert. Why do you make everything harder for me, you miserable, bloated shit? He gave Tolliver an intensely tired look. So I see you finally decided to join the family business, eh? Can't say I'm surprised how you've come to look. Tolliver bristled, quite literally. His translucent flesh rippled and spiked outward, and he pushed himself up over top the must as high as he could go. The man just stared at him. You are fat and useless, Tolliver, he said. But you are alive. Stay the fuck out of my way. He turned and started walking toward the nearest car. Tolliver's rearmost eyes watched the must's little yellow-mouthed puppet sprint up the line toward the sunken town. Go slide beneath a rock and stay out of this. Tolliver birthed a massive, three-fingered hand out of his right flank and slammed it down atop the must. Not a drop of his flesh touched the man. He felt only a singular, extreme jolt of pain and then realized the arm he'd made was gone at the wrist. The must, now an electric yellow skull burning atop the melted remnants of a suit, cracked his neck and fixed his empty sockets on Tolliver. The pressure must have done some damage, even though Tolliver hadn't touched him. The must's arm was gone down to just above the elbow. 
The skull turned to observe the injury. You fucking idiot, he said. His voice was like jittering static. It stained the air. I'm... Tolliver whipped a new appendage sideways over the ground. So fast he could feel the air growing hot at the tip. It struck the must with a thunderclap, blowing away the dust on the ground and sending the man careening into the derailed train cars. They pitched and rolled further into the desert. Tolliver brought the appendage toward his eyes for inspection. Even as he watched, a great scrim of yellow fuzz sparked and burned into the flesh. He flicked this and most of the arm onto the ground, clustered eyes watching the combined slurry smoking into the desert floor. All his remaining eyes were focused on the must, which was dragging itself from the wreckage of the rear car. Its body took three steps out of the growing dust cloud and collapsed into a great puff of yellow, all save the head, which remained suspended in the air. The glowing skull opened its jaws, screamed, and flew at Tolliver. Vasily hugged his body against the tail of the snake thing as it shot through the forest of support poles beneath the village. He forced his eyes shut against the current of filthy water and desperately tried to hold his breath, even as the thing battered him against the posts. The protection beneath his jacket held out, thankfully. Otherwise, he'd certainly have been critically wounded. A broken rib, at the least. As it was, he managed to hold out long enough the thing grew tired and slowed, letting Vasily risk trying to free his pistol. The second he did, the tail whipped furiously beneath his arm and slid from his grasp. But that second was all Vasily needed. He emptied the rest of the magazine into the thing and dared to open his left eye to the burning darkness. Blood mixed with the taste of oil and water. Strong hits then, but only enough at best to wound the tail or possibly the thing's hip. Vasily wouldn't risk Moira's safety firing at a higher angle forcing himself not to think she might be dead. From the start, his only thought had been on the feeding habits of swamp caiman in the Americas. They would roll their prey to death beneath the waves, but wouldn't eat them right away. Instead, the beasts would dig larders into the muddy banks and leave their meal there to rot. He felt an odd heat against his breast, but ignored it, searching through the pain for shapes in the black. Something in these chill depths that would prove Moira alive, or at least provide him with some new information. He whipped his head about, lungs screaming for air. Nothing. The beast had gone. He needed to surface. Nothing. Yumiko disappearing beneath the waves, her corpse swaddled tight in canvas cloth. Fog obscured light from the ship pressed down over top her, marking her silhouette as it bucked and twisted. Thin black arms pressed from the cloth, clawing up at the surface and disappeared. A hand, small and pale, floated through blue shafts of sunlight cutting down through the slats in the boardwalks overhead. Moira hovered in the water just below him, dress swirling around her as her body came to rest among shards of broken wood jutting up from the sandy floor. Her eyes were frozen open catching the sunlight and shining so brightly yellow he almost forgot he too was about to drown. The thing at his breast, likely some new injury the creature had dealt him, burned so hotly the pain bloomed like a flower in his mind. That shocked him out of a cold numbness and let his hand reach down, 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 to gather Moira's dress about her chest and then drag her up, up, up out of the darkness. Vasily surfaced, sucking down stagnant air that felt so sweet to his starving lungs it may as well have been perfume. He tried to haul Moira out of the water, but she slipped the second her face broke the surface. He cursed and dove again, not quite seeing the shape of something twisted around one of the support poles a few meters away. Red eyeshine followed Vasily's back as the man dove clumsily beneath the gently lapping surface. After a few minutes of quiet, he resurfaced dragging Moira's face above the water and trying to slap her awake. Whatever had been done to his chest burned so hotly now he felt himself drifting in and out of consciousness. His body moved on without him, splashing and back-paddling until his arm slapped down on a crude dock resting just beneath the water. 
He dragged himself and Moira atop it, coughing and ejecting the empty magazine and fumbling the last of his two remaining magazines into the feed well. He held the slide open and blew through the barrel before racking around into the chamber and trying to find the thing that had dragged Moira into the water. Silence and darkness greeted him. Waves lapped against the sand behind and beside him. He'd apparently made it all the way to a dock fixed to the eastern shore of a fetid pond beneath the village, or at least to some sort of island he didn't see earlier. In the distance, he could hear footsteps and splashes, shouts, many little things falling into the water. All this noise echoed and died and re-emerged amongst the suffocating forest of support posts. Most of the wooden poles were so dark with mold he could only see them as silhouettes against what light leaked through the boards overhead. Moira's body slipped from his grasp and cupfuls of water dribbled onto the boards. Vasily heard something chuckle in the dark, and he turned and fired twice, hearing only one shot and a splash. Shit, he muttered to himself in Russian, manually ejecting the second round. He'd pulled the trigger on it, but it hadn't gone off. Even that short amount of time in the water had been enough to wet the powder in the cartridge. It could also simply have been a bad primer, but that was far less a certainty than the impromptu dive he'd just gone on. He saw something slide just beneath the surface of the water ten or so meters from shore. Far enough, he wasn't comfortable wasting bullets to shoot at it. Something burned in his chest, had been burning, and he stripped off his jacket to inspect the armor beneath. A blackened bit over his left breast was hot to the touch. Steaming, actually, and covered with ash from his burned suit and what looked like bits of smoldering red paper. Vasily? Moira croaked. He looked and saw he laid his jacket over top her instinctively, which was probably not the best idea given how wet she was. He reached to take it off her, but she curled her arms around it and he paused. Soft red embers burned around a growing hole in the left breast of the jacket, curlicues of smoke rising upward. What on earth? He said, looking quickly to Moira's face. Her eyes were lazy from the near drowning, not quite able to stay open on their own, but she seemed present enough to hear him. He was glad to not have to try resuscitating her himself, but her recovery made no sense. Best not to look a gift horse in the mouth, though. He thought. Can you stand? He asked, looking at the crude stairwell leading up into the light at the back of the dock. She followed his gaze and then nodded, coughing, though she didn't seem able to do much else. He cursed under his breath, feeling waves kick up onto the little dock beneath him. Something was moving in the water. He pulled his feet away from the edge. You need to go, Moira, he said, shaking her shoulder. You need to move. She looked at him and then turned and began coughing until she was vomiting up cups of water onto the boards. More than she should have ever had in her lungs and still remained conscious. Vasily felt an impact on the boards by his feet and turned to see the creature erupt from the water. It was fully twenty feet long, possibly longer as its tail disappeared into the water beyond where he could see. Thick arms powered it forward over Vasily's legs protruding from a scaled chest that was part human, part caiman. Its mouth took up every inch from its breast to its nose, forming a dangling pouch that spread wide at the lips like some profane, toothed frog. In a moment of frozen clarity, the word Sicilian popped into Vasily's mind, along with the smell of old textbooks and an image of a great, blind worm. Then it opened that mouth and bit into Vasily so hard he felt the steel around his chest and arm threatening to give way. He could hear rivets and fasteners popping and bursting loose, could feel them stabbing him beneath the metal. Vasily had managed to keep his neck out of the way of the bite, forestalling an outright fatal jab to his throat, but the thing was now dragging him back into the water. Confusion had shown in its eyes when it hadn't bitten through him like he were a great stick of butter but it was still determined to kill him. Vasily jammed his gun against the thing's face and pulled the trigger. For a moment it froze, clearly worried, but then the bullet failed to fire, and Vasily heard the thing laugh deep in its belly. 
Then he was twirling into the air and down into the water, spinning away into the dark. Hey there, folks. If you're like me, then you love a scary story. But why settle for bargain bin, big box store, blandness when you can get piping hot homemade horror delivered directly to your home? Support the West Side Fairy Tales today on Patreon, and you can get episodes like this one ad-free, as well as access to merch, ebooks, and other amazing deals. But most importantly, you'll help bring weird, original content like Sin Carriers to life. If you want more bizarre, creepy, and horrifying indie fiction, then go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today. Vicky passed building after building, leading the others deeper into the odd floating town. Irregular boardwalks and solitary planks strung between the porches provided the only pass through the suspended berg. Blindly running into the town had gotten them safely away from the collapsing platforms beside the train, but now getting back to the train was proving nigh impossible. Only two options remained to them. Finding an elevated connection to the sandy dunes bordering the town, or climbing down into the fetid pond beneath it and swimming to shore. Vicky grimaced when he thought of that option, and looked at the glimmering shadows beneath him. Whatever lurked in the waters was still battering its way about the support posts beneath their feet. The priest, Mildover, and the young accountant, Elam, were taking care to keep their rifles trained through the spaces between the cracks. The last of their party, Ducky, seemed more interested in the buildings than what was going on beneath their feet. He said just as much as they passed beneath an archway of thin branches twisted together between two sagging homes. Or... At least what Vicky figured were homes. At least he could see beds in them. Where'd they get all this? Ducky asked. That's a lot of wood to scrounge out all this sand. It probably came with the trains, Mildover said, peering down into the dark. It had gone quiet down there save for the steady dripping and lapping of water. He kicked a toe's worth of grit between the planks and clucked his tongue when he heard how long it took to touch the surface. Everything comes and leaves that way. Trains brought sticks through? Ducky continued, pointing at the boughs above him. The twisted shapes grew in number and density as they walked deeper into the town, forming porticos and arcades from which dangled tattered scraps of cloth and rope. Those in the most wind and sun-secluded areas showed dried flower petals and leaves tangled in their weavings. And all of this? I guess, but it feels... This is the sort of stuff you get from around you, in my opinion. Ducky nibbled his lip, feeling caught on what he was trying to say. Gathered, you mean? Elam asked. He gave Ducky a disapproving look the other boy didn't see. Elam didn't much appreciate Ducky's lackadaisical stance with his weapon, carrying the half-broken rifle like a stick he'd found on the ground. Yeah, but it's all sand here, Ducky said looking around as though to find an unaccounted-for copse of trees. Elam drew closer to one of the protected archways, going up on his tiptoes to get a better look at the bough beside a dry-rotted window frame. The flowers he saw were lightly purple, fading to lilac at their bases, and grew in small, bunching clusters. He found his mind drifting to math for the first time in a while. There's a lot, Ducky said. I guess it seems like too much. You do remember there's something beneath us in the water, correct? Mildover said in a hushed, hurried voice. Trains carry a great many things, Ducky. I'm sure flowers are amongst them. Elam rocked back on his heels, turning his attention from the bows to some oddity of movement beyond the filthy glass of the window beside him. No, he's right, Elam said. Just think of the freight and delivery costs for the smallest thing. Much less what you add for cultivation and gathering. Market prices? I mean, this place is dismal. How can they afford a luxury like flowers if they aren't growing them here? 
The movement beyond the window increased, and Elam reached back to Mildover quietly, pawing blindly for the priest's arm and pointing when he felt him turn. None of that matters, Mildover almost shouted. Just, Lord in heaven, what is it? Vicky stopped walking and turned, looking to Ducky and then the window behind him. He took a sharp breath. There hadn't been time to mention what he'd seen in the back of the post exchange, only that there was more going on here than just the thing in the water. He felt his hand shaking slightly at his side. Wait, wait, he said. You probably shouldn't go in there. I ain't going inside that fucking building, Ducky said, turning to give Vicky a severe look, as though Vicky were somehow volunteering him for the task instead of suggesting just the opposite. Elam gave him a similar look, as though the trespass had never crossed his mind. All of them heard a click and then turned to see Mildover walking into the house. Well, that wasn't, Vicky said, defeated. He raised his free hand, palm up to Ducky, and then Elam. Elam passed a concerned look to both of them, and then sighed and followed Mildover into the home. Ducky blinked and shook his head, turning to Vicky. I'm not going in there, he said. No way. No way, you say, I say no way. Vicky muttered, walking toward the door. Ducky rolled his eyes, considered peeking in the window, and then decided against even that and went to lean against the wall of the opposite building. Vicky stepped inside and gagged, covering his nose. What's that smell? He asked, not actually wanting to know the answer. Elam stepped aside and pointed at the bed in the corner. The house was comprised of just two small rooms. A tiny room in the back and the large bedroom in which they now stood. It had been abandoned for some time, years likely, given the state of the room's few decorations. There was nothing so much as a photograph, but somebody had crocheted together a few geometric patterns from linen and hung them on the walls. Christian symbols intermixed with other patterns Vicky was less familiar with that seemed to draw the eye. These had yellowed and unraveled in places, leaving the walls covered in man-made cobwebs. It was, of course, hardly the most unsettling thing in the room. Aside from the overturned chairs and the smell and the bouquets of dried flowers, aside from the room's only other decoration, a jawless human skull hanging by ribbons strung through its eye sockets, aside from all that, there was the body. It lay in a pool of crusted filth, thinned near to bones in its extremities. Whether by sickness or malnutrition, Vicky couldn't know though both was most certainly the closest to correct answer. Some other malady had caved in its torso from its navel to its throat, rending away the bones but not the flesh, which now lay flat over the lightly pulsing organs beneath. Its jaw had similar deformities, collapsing along its center line to lay over the throat and the many new, inhuman connections at the base of the tongue. That muscle itself extended over the lips and lay thick and weeping over the thing's cheekbone. It gasped, quite suddenly, and all three of them leapt back in unison. Weak supports beneath the house protested, and the floor sagged half a foot in the direction opposite the door. The new grade caused Vicky to stumble against the wall, and for a moment the lot of them shared a quiet suspicion his clumsiness would collapse the structure in its entirety. It shuddered and held, but a steady, whining protest rose in the lumber and never quite subsided. The awful thing in the bed continued waking. It seemed suddenly much more capable of being alive than when they'd found it, rasping around its rotten knot of a tongue and flexing its thin, feeble hands. Vicky swallowed and steadied himself, moving now as though the floor were the ice over an autumn river and not wood. Elam watched him cautiously. Mildover, the priest, had eyes for nothing but the thing. Hell's going on in there? Ducky called from outside. Y'all better come back out. That house is leaning. Vicky's eyes darted toward the entrance and then to Mildover. The man had a curious look on his face. The most emotion, honestly... 
Vicky had seen him express since they'd began their time on the train. Surprise, revulsion, and recognition. Hey! Ducky yelled outside. Vicky turned to tell him things were fine, if odd, in the building, but a gunshot rendered him temporarily deaf. The blast was so intense inside the building he found himself slightly off balance and stumbling into the wall again. This time, Elam followed him, his curses just barely audible over the impromptu tinnitus. It only took a second for the men to recover, but when they did, they found Mildover standing over top the body with his rifle pointed at what remained of the thing's head. What in the fuck, Mildover? Elam shouted. The priest looked at him, face almost childish in the depth of its fear. He reached down without explanation to the scant, stained sheets covering the thing's pelvis and tore them away. Vicky might have blushed upon finding it was a female, were the other revelation not so distressing. Something like a great red kidney lay on the bed beside it, pulsing to the same rhythm as the thing's now dying heart. It was part organ, part balloon, and so swollen with fluid and matter its lightly translucent skin stretched tight as a drum. Cords of twisted flesh connected it to the body beside it, those two almost glowing with that same profane red light. That color continued into the thing's body past the connection point above the hip to the right of the navel, fading as it approached the abdomen. What in the name of God? Vicky asked. Mildor's expression warped into one of implacable rage. He pointed at Vicky with his free hand, the scar on his cheek as black as the mood inside the house. The barrel of his rifle rested against the ripe skin of the obscene organ. No! Not of God! He shouted, sounding mad. Wait! Mildor! Elam protested. Vicky didn't waste a second. He tripped over his own feet and rolled to get out of that little house before Mildover pulled the trigger. The priest's mad eyes were the last thing Vicky saw as Elam clapped his hands over his ears, stumbled back, and the house crumbled around them. It sank like a broken elevator, shuddering with an inconstant rhythm into the water below, its flimsy door splintering to nothing against the walkway. You fucking idiot! Elam screamed. An argument broke out between the priest and the young accountant Vicky could only barely hear. Generally, they were trying to get out before the roof came down over top them and forced their heads beneath the water. Well, uh, fellas, Vicky yelled, kneeling at the now empty edge of the boardwalk. I, um, I, I think I'll go find uh, some rope or something. Okay, okay, okay. They couldn't hear him. He was surprised they could even hear each other, to be honest. Vicky looked around and realized Ducky had vanished. God damn it. He picked up his suitcase and brushed himself off, taking stock of the structures around him before walking to a blocky storage building like the one behind the post exchange. He found it to be a sort of boat launch, laid out long ways with a wide ramp down the middle to accommodate boats being dragged in and out of the water. The boats themselves were small, two-seated things with flat bottoms and sides that would be good only for floating about on the placid waters below the town. One of these, floundered and still laden with barrels of something, lay half-submerged at the base of the dock. Given the lack of clearance, it would be impossible for him to launch anything off that ramp without a few men to remove the debris. Damn, Vicky said, looking around for anything else to help Elam and the priest. Awful noises were rising up throughout the town and back by their train. Screeching metal and thunderclap explosions. This trip had been so cursed it wasn't long odds they would soon be pushing that goddamned locomotive themselves instead of riding it. That was, of course, a problem for another time. Speculation was neither Vicky's interest nor his forte. His outlook on life was that folks had a certain quality to them they should stick to a talent or an interest or the like, and too much of concerning yourself with what lay outside your lane was bound to make you miserable. After all, if God wanted you to occupy your life with something, he certainly would have provided you some proficiency in regard to it. This mentality got him through his work under the Blackwell Corporation. 
Ugly times made ugly moments, but they didn't have to make ugly men. Vicky was a salesman, and good at it, if not much else. It was the only time he could really talk with people like a normal human being. Even if the conversations were well rehearsed and slated in his favor, and he enjoyed the work, though there were always moments creeping up on him. Moments like with Cutting or Mr. Belial, where Vicky had to see deeper into the workings of the Blackwell Corporation and its beneficiaries than he liked. It was a kindness that he could shut all that out, like it was all flickering city lights beyond a locked and often shuttered window to which he possessed the only key. Work was work, after all. And without Mr. Blackwell, what else would Vicky do? When only one person was kind enough to provide you a living, you couldn't just walk away from that. Aha! Vicky said to himself, finally finding a coil of rope that wasn't completely rotted through on a second-story catwalk. It still wasn't in perfect condition, but it seemed strong enough and long enough to get those two out of the water. Assuming they weren't already dead or free from their own efforts. Vicky took a breath and wrapped the robe over his shoulder. A voice said below him. It came from a dark offshoot of the main building he hadn't explored yet. Vicky had climbed up to the catwalk because it was fairly well lit by the holes in the roof compared to the darker, deeper sections of the storage building. It was only a few yards wide. The top segment of a square, really that made up the hole in the wall the boats launched through. Is that right? Hello down there? Vicky called, licking his lips and resettling the rope over his shoulders. Something shifted in the dark, a sound like a leather bag full of chopped meat being dragged and pushed over the wood planks. A head and eyes peeked out of the shadows beneath him, and Vicky decided then to be very, very quiet going forward. A thing just like the one Cutting had been stabbing to death struggled out of the dark beneath him, its crab eyes searching the room with erratic, insectile quickness. Vicky watched them twitch about left to right and then slowly rise to him. Damn, he muttered. The thing said, talking with the horrific, vertical mouth that dropped from its nose to its navel. This creature had deflated women's breasts dangling from its ruined ribcage, one of which twisted aside as a barbed, prehensile tendril pushed through the flesh at the top of it. The ugly appendage twitched about and then pointed in Vicky's direction. Uh, excuse me, sir. Ma'am? Vicky said, standing and adjusting his suit. The typewriter-laden suitcase was a comfort in his hand. I'm not sure if you can understand me, but I would like to... The barb retracted into the thing's chest and then burst forward with a squelching pop. Vicky barely managed to stutter step out of the way before it embedded itself in his throat. The barb thunked into the wood behind him and then fell loose onto the catwalk. Nasty, clearish gel spurted from a hole in the curve beneath the tip. Vicky shuddered. I suppose that's it for introductions? He mumbled to himself, undoing the latches on his briefcase and pulling out a brand new Blackwell automatic typewriter. He hefted it over his head as the thing's body sprouted more barbs and the one that had flown at Vicky whipped back into the thing's chest. Its freakish mouth opened to make more noises, but produced only a gurgle as Vicky's typewriter caved its skull into its throat. For a few worried moments, the creature twisted back and forth, its barbs twitching madly, but then it collapsed onto its face. Momentum from the fall dislodged the typewriter, which rolled with a bounce down the ramp and then vanished into the water with a splash. God damn it, Vicky said, closing his briefcase and standing. Even without the machine, the suitcase was plenty heavy. Enough at least to counterweight the rope he slung over his opposite shoulder. He hoped Elam and the priest had made it out of the sinking house by now, though he supposed he'd find out soon enough. Where Ducky had gone off to, he could only guess. 
but hope beyond hope, the boy had not come across one of those slug things he'd just killed. If they were two, there were bound to be more. And, come to think of it, it had a fairly similar look to the thing Mildover had shot in the bed. That certainly merits some asking after, Vicky thought to himself. He climbed down the ladder to the first floor and froze, noticing a shadow wriggling on the planks outside the doorway. It was the only way in or out of the building save for jumping into the water past the boat launch. Vicky watched the crab-eyed thing step into view. It was slightly bigger than the one he'd killed, and the fangs lining its mouth were long and thin and yellow. They wriggled and clicked. It said. The thing raised its eyes to the ceiling and let out a wet scream that made Vicky's skin crawl. Barbs bristled on the thing's body, reminding Vicky almost of the pattern of brass buttons on a conductor's uniform. It pushed its way into the building, and Vicky was dismayed to see more shadows shuffling outside. They repeated the same nonsense phrases, punctuated with awful, irregular screams. Fine, then, Vicky said, kneeling down and snapping a short key off the threads, tying it inside his jacket pocket. Then he reopened the suitcase and pulled aside the felt lining in its false bottom, running his finger over the latch beside the keyhole. He took a deep breath and then unlocked the hidden compartment, writhing shadows filling the floor beneath him. West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, and produced by Tyler Bell. Sound design, original music, and foley by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein, copyright, WSF Productions, 2023.